This episode of Be You, Be Different is brought to you by Pulsroll. They produce vibrating foam rollers and products that help athletes strengthen, prepare and recover faster, which is really important if you're training hard and want to get the most out of your training. Take a look at their website, pulseroll.com, and you can use the discount code BF20 to save at their website. Thanks, Pulsroll. Welcome to Be You, Be Different, the British Fencing Podcast. I'm Sean Walton, and here we are again with uh, with Sophie DeVote. Hi, Sean. How are you doing, Sophie? Pretty good. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be um, doing episode three, Be You, Be Different. We're chatting about money, the stuff that makes the world go round. Yep, it's all about the money, this episode. <laughs> um, so we've got, we've got a few interviews giving different perspectives on on funding and how uh, how we can track down money to to keep the sport running in the country? Yes. Um, let's 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 go fantasy here. Let's say we won millions of pounds on the lottery. <laughs> My ticket comes in. <laughs> yeah, finally, finally, I've been waiting a long time for this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but let's let's say I've won fifty million pounds on the on the Euro, Euro Millions lottery. Oh. Um, what should I be spending it on? What would you spend it on? Just imagine. It's the universal dream, isn't it? If you win the lottery, it's the question everyone answers at some point. What would you do if you won the lottery? What would you do? Well, apart from the usual frivolous things like loads of houses, flash cars, holidays in exotic sunny places. (laughs) You um, do that already, don't you, Sean? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sorry, more of that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I almost certainly would put some of it into fencing. My own club in Edinburgh, Sal Holyrood, would probably love a, a massive permanent venue with... 50 pieces and oh, gym yeah. and cafeteria and all the sort of uh, lovely things that we would we would like for our own fencing club and probably make a gift or two to British fencing and Scottish fencing as well with yeah, probably their proviso I would like to know what they were going to spend it on but that's uh, it that's the golden question isn't it I think that's nice to hear that you'd give it to British fencing and Scottish fencing I think it's important that the money coming in though as you say you need to know where it's going and and what's happened there's there's been this history British fencing had lost their uh, funding it had been cut there's changes now there's things happening and it's a lot about I suppose this episode is opening up what happens with the money that comes in? Not just to us, but in a club, how do you raise funds and what should you spend them on? And as an individual fencer, how can you find finance and funding to help you with your fencing? So it's quite interesting to hear from those different levels today, what happens with the money? Why do you get it? How do you get it? And what should you be doing with it when you do have it? I don't know if I buy flash cars and houses. I have a feeling (laughs) I probably would. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I suspect that any money that our national governing bodies, clubs and individuals get, sadly can't be spent on, on flash cars and holidays. This is the thing, yeah. But usually the uh, the funding bodies are, are very particular about what you what you spend the money on and what they expect to see um, as a return on their money. Absolutely. I think that's the thing with this money coming in. It's, it's not just a blank cheque. 
There are, yeah. you know, specific outcomes that tie into government strategies, wider strategies across being able to increase participation to improve quality of life. So anything that we're doing, for example, at British Fencing, and we'll hear um, about that from Georgina and how the funding is actually tied to, to bigger things. Um, and I think that's a good thing to take ahead even into clubs, um, is if you're, if you're bringing in money, being able to actually say how it's going to benefit people and who are the people that it's going to benefit. I think that, that helps a lot to actually attract funding and to be able to keep it. But we also think we need to discuss, um, and I think we'll hear from everyone is you, we can't just keep relying on this sort of external funding as if there's this golden pot of, of money that's constantly coming in. It's not sustainable. So how do we all make this activity of fencing sort of pay for itself or bring in more money that isn't relying on this on this external funding? So, But you, you talked to Georgina Usher, the CEO of British Fencing, about all this. Yeah, I did indeed. I was out at the Cadet Junior World Championships in Torun in Poland and uh, Georgina was there doing some safeguarding work for the FIE. Uh, But I managed to to call her for a a quick chat, (laughs) and here's what she had to say. Okay, so Georgina, Georgina, where does British Fencing's money come from? So at the moment, British Fencing primarily gets its money from three sources. The majority, 60% of our money, comes from Sport England, which was roughly £700,000 in the last financial year. Membership accounts 30 to 35%. So that was approximately £380,000. And it is worth mentioning, though, that 40% of that income goes straight to the home countries. So that will be Scottish fencing, England fencing, and so on. The remaining 5 to 10% is a sort of basket of things like income from events, coach education, small amounts of money we still get from UK sport to support our international relations programmes and so on. Okay, and so on the face of it, to me anyway, that sounds like quite a lot of money. So where where does it go? So good good question. (laughs) Sport England money is spent in three areas. So the first area is the work that we do to support the and deliver against the Sport England talent strategy in England. And we do this in fencing through the work of the Athlete Development Programme. The second area where we're funded to work is in partnership projects to deliver community projects and programs, which themselves deliver against the social outcomes as laid out in the government sports strategy. So I appreciate that that's quite a complicated yes. description of just, what we yeah, do. Get the money and so spend it on, on it's that. It's not as simple as, yeah, exactly, yeah. I wish. Um, it's probably easier to, if I, some of the projects that we do do, for example, we work um, in partnership with London Youth to uh, deliver fencing to communities in London. We work in partnership with the Maslahar Charity on the successful Muslim Girls Fence Project, which is now running in three to four cities across England. And we also run in partnership um, delivering our university participation project again across England. So that's where Sport England money is spent. The last place that Sport England provide funding is in contributing to the work that we do centrally. And this includes the work that we do to ensure that we meet governance standards and regulatory requirements. Um, Some examples of this is work that we do around equality and diversity and the work that we do supported by the NSPCC Child Protection Sport Unit to ensure our clubs meet the minimum welfare requirements expected from them as an affiliated NGB club. 
So that lays out the three areas that we can use Sport England's money for. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the, to the membership, in 2014, we did um, an analysis of where the majority, where exactly, you know, where do we spend our money? And once you've taken into account the, the cost of the sword, the cost of safeguarding, the cost of insurance, um, you've then got a lot of little costs, which all add up. So running the AGM, rates and bills for the office, some IT costs in terms of emails. I mean, yeah. they all sound like little costs, but yeah. anyone who's run a small business will know that those costs can start to add up. And of course, we're very lucky because British Fencing own the office. So thank goodness we're not actually paying any rent for where we, um, where, for, for, for the offices that we work, yeah. we currently work out of. But in 2014, no, there wasn't any money left over to pay a single staff salary. Hmm which was all right in 2014 because what we were getting was we had a, a, a million pound sponsor, admittedly over five years, yeah. and we also had money from UK Sports. So we were able to pay staff salaries. However, looking forward, as you know, yeah. we've lost four million pounds worth of funding. That's the cycle funding that we had from UK Sport. We're operating in an environment of decreased fun funding from Sport England, and the next, well, the next spending review is currently underway, government spending review. It's likely funding will further fall. So we have to think very carefully about what the future holds for us as an NGB. So moving forward to this financial year, we have been awarded funding for medal support plan to support Richard Cruz on his journey to Tokyo. And we've also been given aspiration fund to support athletes on a journey to qualify for Tokyo. However, the funding for the last two years of our athlete development program, as I mentioned, has been reduced by £75,000. And to put that in context, that's not dissimilar to the amount of money we've used to subsidise athlete participation in the cadet and junior European and World Championships. So this presents quite a big challenge in terms of the, what we're going to be able to, to provide using that program for our talented youngsters going forwards. Hmm. So you've touched a little bit there on on how things have changed over the years to the position we're in in now. So are there any particular significant changes that have uh, shaped the way our funding looks now? I think what is the, the, the light, if you like, at the end of the tunnel for me is that we have managed to reverse the gradual decline on membership income. Hmm. So looking at the fee, membership fees didn't rise at all, not even in line with inflation for 15 years yes, in the run-up to 2016. When I heard that, it's just amazing. So in 20, so financial year end 2016, the total amount of revenue coming from membership was £280,000. And again, 40% of that going out to the home countries doesn't leave British fencing with a lot of money to provide services back to the membership. However, in 2016, we introduced a new membership scheme. And part of the thinking behind that was that we have many fencers up and down the country, indeed, round about 15,000 fencers who aren't contributing, who are fencing in clubs, but not contributing in any way to um, the insurance, for example, the development of the sport and, and so on. And, and even so that we can pay staff to help support the clubs. Yeah. So the new membership structure, as you know, created a new category of recreational membership. So that has been on the rise. And since 2016, 
we did, uh, in 2016, we did a, a restructure of the types of membership, did a one-off increase, and since then have been doing inflationary rises every financial yep. year, which the board is committed to continuing to ensure we don't decline in real terms in terms of the money that we're getting. Yeah, and in. find ourselves yeah. falling behind. Yes. So, so that has been certainly for the last two years. We're tracking now a 10% increase, interestingly, in both numbers and income which is great. And that's yeah. one of the key messages going forwards that we really need to, to even if we have, say, a few hundred of those recreational members now signing up, as I said, we've got 15,000 people estimated that are fencing in clubs up and down the country, not contributing to any of the work that British fencing does, yeah. or in fact, any of their home countries, because, of course, we collect on behalf of the home countries. Yeah, indeed. So um, looking forward then, what's what's the... The future view for funding and making British fencing work financially and and what it'll allow you to, to offer the members? Okay, so we've had some good news in as much as whilst we did lose the world-class programme funding, um, we have been awarded medal support plan funding for Richard Cruz and that's that's absolutely fantastic for Richard. I know that he's um, doing extremely well at the moment and it's great to be able to give him some support in the run-up to Tokyo. We've also received aspiration funding. It's to give the athletes that are currently on track to qualify for the Olympics a better chance of qualifying. However, the difference between aspiration funding and world-class program support is is what the athletes are expected almost to do in in return for that because the aspiration fund is a lot about how the athletes in return can inspire others with their journey and that's absolutely a really critical thing for the future of sport and looking towards the next cycle it's very likely and we're, we're hopeful that there will be other funding streams that will open up which will recognize that there is value in having inspirational role models attempting to qualify for the Olympics because of how they can inspire both both their own communities, but actually, more importantly, communities from outside fencing with their journey. Yeah. So that's that's pretty important. So there's that. Sport England talent funding, we are expecting that to continue a slow decrease. The expectation is that British fencing will kind of work simultaneously to be, to make the programs more sustainable. So where people can afford to contribute more that they can. And also alongside that, ensure that we put structures in place to help disadvantaged athletes still be able to participate so of course that's a big challenge for us because sport fencing isn't cheap as you know no indeed so that that's an area where we're going to have to be doing some hard work to work out what we do finally i think that i think i've already mentioned the growth of the membership has been key to financial sustainability i think we're going to have to look more closely at some of the other things that we do in terms of the events that we run over the last 20 to 30 years, the standard of the events that, that we put on have significantly increased. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, whilst I appreciate that, that entering some of the British Championships, it's not exactly cheap, but we lose currently £40,000 on delivering our annual portfolio of events. So it still doesn't, doesn't exactly uh, wash its face. Yeah. So no, that's a challenge. Really sure. I think in summary, for me, that... The biggest challenge we face is ever-increasing expectations. 
both in terms of what the members expect and also what we are expected to do to be an organisation in receipt of public money. And in particular, parents of young athletes these days have significantly higher expectations around what British fencing should be doing for international junior fencing compared to 20 years ago. As I mentioned earlier, I don't think my mother knew who British fencing was when I competed as a junior. And working for British Fencing, I did say I'm not sure she knows today <laughs> what British Fencing is. However, slightly separate point. And, but that's really where we're going to have to be realistic. Government funding will fall. We can't increase the membership fee sufficiently to bridge that gap. We can't keep relying on, um, you know, the right kind of projects to come that always align with what the members want to, us to spend our money on compared to what Sport England want to fund compared to what UK Sport want to fund. So the best position for us is to be a national governing body that has enough income that we can make choices that are absolutely right for our sport going forwards. And it's working together both in terms of getting more volunteers to help out, which is extremely important, and finding ways of encouraging more of the people that do fence to join up and become members. Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you for that overview of um, where British fencing's money comes from and what it what it goes out on. Um, my last question was really about what other sources of funding there are for individuals and clubs as well, because uh, no doubt our listeners will be curious about that too. Great question. There is funding out there. It's incredibly hard to get. From a club perspective, we've actually, if you go to the British Fencing website, there is a web page which is all about the kind of funding opportunities that exist for clubs. And we do have support internally available to help clubs who are seeking to apply for various different funding um, pots, if you like, that are available. I think for, for young athletes, there are now a, a variety of opportunities. I think I mentioned before things like Sports Aid, um, who, who also run a backing the best scheme. There are, um, there's TAS for university students. There's some eligibility requirements around, of course, all of those. They're all listed on our website with instructions on how to apply. We've also got to be not shy about asking. And that's the thing. British fencing doesn't have the resources to individually help every club and every athlete that could be super successful. And it is just a question of, in some cases, going, you know what, I am going to have to ask it is possibly a little bit embarrassing, but if you don't ask, you don't get. It's a very British thing not to ask, exactly. though, isn't it? And it's something we need to break out of. Exactly. And and I see a lot of um, athletes who are doing fundraising on social media, and that kind of thing is great. And I'm, I'm sure that over time, hopefully, we can get the athletes together and, and they can share stories about what works and what doesn't work. And, of course, we're there to help and facilitate that. Again, we can't set up individual funding initiatives for for individual athletes that's not you know again we don't have the resources to do that however i think i would encourage athletes to at least keep asking you know ask your school ask your university ask your local authority get onto the to google and see what you can find because there are things that are out there and we just need to make more use of of what is available great well georgina thanks very much indeed for joining us it's a pleasure yeah, so there she was in, in fine chatty form as always, <laughs> giving us a, a really clear picture of, of where 
British fencing's finances currently stand. I suppose it's not um it's not all good news the way that funding of national governing bodies is going. Yeah. We're certainly gonna see less money coming in, but very clear about what we can what we can do to make British fencing sustainable and being able to continue the work that it does. I think so. Uh, yeah, as you can hear there, Georgina's got all of the stats at her fingertips to, you know, we're talking about percentages of, of where money goes and to who. But the key takeaway from, from that really is, is listening to what we need to do with the membership and to encourage and to increase those people who are out there in clubs fencing to, to sign up to British fencing and, and to realize why that should be done, to realize why that's important. So it's not this kind of, oh, I don't know who British fencing is, you know, as she mentioned, it's more that this is part of my journey as a fencer is becoming more involved with and supporting the organization that, that encourages the correct governance and the correct safeguarding and the correct standards throughout the sport. So becoming a member and actually, you know, feeling a member and becoming an active member of that community. I, I think that's going to be a big call out for us um, to keep encouraging. So if you run a club, do do encourage and make sure that all your members have, have signed up. We have that introduction membership. It's free for 90 days. So you can get people in to the club and start without asking them to give any money it's just making sure that we're bringing them into that community but talking of clubs you spoke as well about um the funding that you've worked with to to gather at your club tell us a bit more about that uh, yeah well when i'm when i'm not doing this uh, i also <laughs> coach at salhorud uh, fencing club in edinburgh that's right a club that we we set up just coming up for eight years ago now and um i had a chat with my sister and club development officer and it's done a variety of roles and attracted quite a lot of funding into the club uh, previously about what's available for, for clubs to help them develop and grow. And uh, here's what she had to say. So, Joe, thanks very much for, for joining me for this, this little interview. Pleasure. So I wanted to talk to you about how clubs work financially. So tell me a little bit about the, the income and expenditure for Sal Holyrood. Okay. So Sal Holyrood is a community sports club in its simplest form, if you like. So we're not a registered community amateur sports club and we're not a charity. So obviously that would differ for each of these scenarios. But for us, our membership income essentially funds our day-to-day running costs. So whole hire, coaches' fees, maintenance of equipment, maybe the purchase of the odd new wires, new blades, body wires, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then we add to that with kind of internal fundraising, if you like. And then when we need to, fundraising through trusts or foundations for bigger projects or, say, capital projects. So bigger. So what would count as a, as a capital project? So something where we are looking to buy a bigger piece of equipment. So say several new pieces of scoring apparatus or whole new sets of kit, for example. So something has some kind of asset to it, has some worth. Yeah. And we tend to have a small profit each year, which kind of goes into a, what we would call free reserves. So cash in the bank that we can do what we like with, really. Mm. So should we want to send you to the Bahamas for a week? Sounds good. And as a committee, we decide that that would be a really worthwhile investment. Then we could choose to do that with that money. Clearly, we won't. Sorry, Sean. Oh, but that's kind of what we could do with those free reserves. And it's quite nice to have them. It gives you a little bit of security. But 
should you be looking, say, to go to an external funder, like a, a charitable trust, they will always look at how much reserves you've got. For example, as a charity, you would probably not want to have much more than kind of 12 months of your running costs. Okay. They tend to see that as, well, why are we funding something that you could probably fund for yourself? Yeah. So there's a bit of a balancing act there, but that's, I suppose, the the crux of how, how we operate. It's fairly straightforward. We're a reasonably small entity, if you like. So there's not a lot of outgoings on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And we tend to try and, well, we always cover that within our membership because you're much more sustainable that way. You're not reliant on somebody else to just run what you do. Yeah. And that, yeah. As I say, it makes you a lot less vulnerable. Okay. So you, you talked a little bit there about sources of external funding for the club for for bigger projects. Mm. Um, so so what are the different types of uh, sources of funds that you, we can tap into as, as a club? Okay. So again, it depends on your the type of organisation you are, I guess. But as a community club that we are, so there are lots and lots of charitable trusts and foundations out there that will support um, and provide grants for sporting activities and facilities and other sources might be your local authority they quite often give grants for encouraging or um, increasing physical activity and also for some sporting events as well there are organizations like kind of lottery funding so wards for all that kind of thing um, which will give you money for again more capital purchases equipment as opposed to see hall hire or coaching fees. Mm-hmm. So what sort of one-off purchases rather than ongoing yeah, expense. Yeah, and they, they don't also fund things like, well, our boxes are five years old and we'd like some new ones. Mm-hmm. It has to be because you've grown or developed as opposed to replacing existing. Okay. So that kind of thing. But, you know, that's a ten thousand up to £10,000 that can come from that fund. So you also talked a little bit about, well, internal fundraising was how you described it. So yeah. what, what sort of things have uh, have we done over the years to, to help uh, boost our funds for, for specific aims? Yeah, so quite a lot. Some fairly quirky, but good fun. I think one of the first ones we did was a fencing footsteps sponsored walk around Indeed. Holyrood Park in the centre of Edinburgh. Um, I'm sure they all felt very foolish, but it raised about £1,500 for the club. Yeah, And I think what was great about that was it was the young fencers in particular who were involved in that. So they had, you know, they were raising the funds. They were really part of it. We've also done a gala match where we had Scotland v Poland, mm-hmm. um, which was was great fun and raised some money for the club as well. We have run competitions and we, we continue to do so. And that is a good source of funding, but clearly you don't want to just run the competition because you want to raise funds it's a fairly crowded calendar, as we all know as it is. So, you know, th- that has to be a, a genuine need for that competition to yeah. run. Other things we have done, uh, we did a, a festival of fencing for a weekend one time where we had a kind of fun competition one day, a movie night, social in the evening, and a kind of come and try sessions as well, which, you know, didn't raise money, but again, just raised awareness and raised the profile of the club. So we've done quite a lot of varied things. There's obviously other things you can do, like bag packs. Again, they kind of generate a bit of money, and it's the children that are then involved, which is is great, you know, from a community point of view. So. Yeah, gives a gives you a feeling of identity with yeah, your club. Yeah, exactly. And of course, we have we run summer camps and Easter camp. This year, we've got summer camp with some of the stars of British and world fencing: Richard and James and Marcus and Ben and Keith and Dominic Delmeda. 
coming up, which is a wonderful opportunity for lots of British fencers. And then we have a gala match on the Friday night. Again, the funds are going to partly fund our plans, ambitious plans as a club, but also to support the GB Men's Foil team on their journey to Tokyo 2020. Sounds a great opportunity for, for anyone keen to see these these guys, which for some of them may be perhaps a, la- a last chance to see. Uh, yes, yes. I'd like to think not, but yes, it possibly will be a chance to see them all together, certainly. Yeah. Club's been running for a, f- a few years now, about seven years, I think. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, in our eight, yeah, eight years now, yeah. Eight years now. Eight years in May, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're getting <laughs> old. So presumably there are more plans for the for the club to continue its its growth and development and uh, some of those will will cost a bit of money presumably can you give you give us an idea of what sort of thing you would see as ambitious future plans for the club and and how these might be funded okay yep well without giving away too many top secret bits of information <laughs> where you know i wouldn't be able to let you out of the room our plans are very much to have our own space something that we can use when we want to. Clearly that has a cost associated with it. Uh, we're keen to develop our performance athletes, but also to be part of a part of a community, you know, and that we are a go-to for young people as a diversion or as a to improve their life skills and whatever that might be. So very much we are keen to have a space that we can call our own. And within that cost may be things like flooring. You know, we're talking 20 or 30 grand there, potentially. Obviously, more equipment if we're hoping to reach more people. So that would involve, I guess, a plethora or a kind of jigsaw of fund raising. So some of it would be potentially trusts and foundations. And they generally give you your best return on investment in terms of the time that you put into to that application. Mm-hmm. But obviously, they come with expectations and outcomes that you have to reach we would look perhaps to corporate sponsors or corporate involvement, community involvement. That, so it, again, it's just balancing it so that you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, if you like, in terms of trying to attract funding, which I think is important for any project or expenditure you're trying to bring money in for. Well, I look forward to seeing the, the, the fruits of your labours and the, the ambitious ambitious goals that we have for the club. And uh, thanks very much for, for taking the time to chat about this. Pleasure. It was great fun. So nothing, nothing better than a cosy chat with your sister over a cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> but plenty of message there about how how clubs can help themselves and some of the funds that are out there. Yes. And also being clear about what what funding bodies want from clubs. What you need to demonstrate is going Absolutely. to be the the benefit from the the funding that you that you get. Yeah, I thought that was incredibly valuable information and. And being aware of the differences in club structure. Are you a charity? Are you a community group? And, and knowing how your, your balances and your reserves in the bank account can affect, um, what people will perceive you then need uh, for future funding. Um, and also I was interested to hear about the, the balance between the, the time, the amount of time it takes to apply for funding is quite massive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, when our clubs first started, I, I took on the, the the task of applying for big lottery fund, yes, which we ended up getting nearly ten thousand pounds to Amazing. Uh, really to effectively kit out the club when we were first starting out. Yeah. But that was a a massive document. Uh, it's a few years ago now, but my recollection is that it was 
43 pages worth of application form with a similar number of pages of guidance. Yes. So wow. it was, it's, wow. it's a properly mammoth task. Yeah. How long, how long do you think it really took you to do? I mean, are we talking sort of weeks? It, it felt months? forever. It yeah. felt forever. <laughs> Still but, going. <laughs> um, uh, um, but yeah, it, rather than just sitting down with the guidance and the application form and, and getting started, um, I also spoke to quite a few people about what we should be emphasizing about the the aims of the club and what we were seeking to deliver. So yeah. I spoke to um, various people in Club Sport Edinburgh who are, are run by the, the City Council to help clubs uh, develop and grow. And I yeah. uh, got a lot of really good advice there on yeah. tying our application to um, national outcomes. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great a benefit, isn't it? Increased yeah. participation, health benefits, social inclusion uh, and all those things that a fencing club can provide. And and to be honest, something that most fencing clubs provide without perhaps really being aware of it. But yes. it's something that funding bodies are, are are keen that you focus on when you're you're seeking funding from them. Yeah, and going through that sort of 43-page kind of document application and speaking to those people, it does help to probably clarify what are we trying to achieve. So it is that thing of there's no privilege, there's no blank check, and being able to actually crystallise what is the goal um, and how are we delivering. I think that's important. It probably is useful to do. Um, and Georgina mentioned back in her interview that there it, there are resources from British Fencing as well. There are pages on our website where you can go and there is information on how to access um, funding. We also do have resources and club development officer to help with these kind of things. So do look out for those. Go to your local people. Come and contact us. Would you be happy for people to ask you more questions about it, Sean? Do you think you'd be inundated with um, club requests to do their 43-page lottery applications for them? Yeah, absolutely guarantee I won't be filling in their forms <laughs> for them. But yeah, if anybody wants to uh, to drop me a line and, and yeah. ask about my own experience of um, tracking down funding for uh, at club level, uh, then yeah, I'd be happy to, happy to field questions on that. Absolutely. And Georgina mentioned as well, you know, it's an individual fencer. If you're looking out for, you know, if you don't run a club, but you might want to be increasing your own potential career. If you're a young fencer, for example, looking at um, being part of the athlete development program, or if you're being part of a future career in fencing in any of the the um, home countries, you could also benefit from going out and looking for opportunities through your school or through funding. And um, you talked to another uh, a Scottish fencer, Mary, is that right? Yeah, indeed. Mary McLaughlin, one of the uh, one of the fencers that I coach, has had a, a busy season competing for for Britain at Junior World Cups. Yes, it, it, that's an expensive business. Mm-hmm. So when we got back from from the World Championships in in Poland, I had a, a brief chat with her about the the finances of uh, being a, a junior internationalist and and where she's been able to find help. And here were her thoughts. Mary, thanks for joining us. It's lovely to be here, Sean. Good, good. So it's been a, a busy year for you, um, doing a, a load of Junior World Cups and domestic competitions. Um, so to tell us, what have you been spending your fencing money on this year? Well, there's definitely been a long list this year. There's been, first of all, the trains back and forth to London or Nottingham for all the domestic competitions quite a few times in the year. The hotels for those competitions. I've got all my flights to all the Junior World Cups, my hotels, my entry fees there, covering the coaches' costs. I've also got the costs of replacing all my new foils, which I've managed to break a lot, (laughs) as well as new bag new equipment and everything i need to keep me going basically yeah all those all those bits and pieces that, that mount up so um you have managed to track down a bit of funding this this year to cover help cover some of those costs at least so tell us about what you've managed to track down 
Well, thankfully for the first time um, for the beginning of this season, I managed to get sports aid money. So I managed to get money from them to help me cover some of the costs for my first few Junior World Cups and stuff, which meant I didn't have to worry about that. I could just book the flights and the accommodation and have that sorted. And as well as that, I also managed to get um, a scholarship from Edinburgh University, where I now study, which has also helped me towards covering the costs for all these Junior World Cups that I've went on this year. And of course, the the reliable bank of mum and dad as well, covering covering else. They've covered still the majority of the costs, but everything, the funding I've received has helped give that little bit of extra leeway and comfort in what I've been able to do. Yeah, to make things just a bit easier. Yes, stuff. And last year, of course, you went off to the European Under-23 Championships in, in an exotic location in, in Armenia. Yes. And you went a, a kind of different route for, for funding that one, didn't you? Yeah, that was one where I got this great opportunity. And I definitely didn't want to turn it down, but there was not really a way that my parents or me could afford to get me there. So I decided to start up um, a GoFundMe campaign just asking my friends and family if anybody could help me out to give me this opportunity. And I wasn't really sure how well it would do, but all the support I received in it was absolutely amazing. And within a few days, I think within a week, I'd raised enough to get me all the way to Armenia from some people that didn't even, I'd never even heard of before. So it was amazing, yeah. Good stuff. So looking forward to another... Another expensive season to come. Uh, looking for for similar funding routes. Is there anything else that you can you can try? Well, I think for next season, definitely, I've managed to secure sport, sports aid funding again, and hopefully, the univer- Edinburgh University will invest in me once again. I think I'm going to try and go the route of maybe a couple of local businesses near me to try and ask, but that's the sort of thing that it really depends on their situation, and it's all. You can not really bet on that. So. Yeah, worth a try though. Yeah, but I'm going <laughs> to shoot my shot there. <laughs> okay, good stuff. Well, thanks very much again and uh, see you again soon. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. So yeah, with the, the, the help that she's had from uh, Sports Aid and Edinburgh University all, all making a, a big contribution to, to the expense of the season, it, it does still boil down a lot of the time to Bank of Mum and Dad keeping yes. talented young athletes going in the sport. Yes, uh, that, I'm afraid, is, is the reality of it. Very few fencers in the UK now are able to fund their fencing through sponsorship or, or external funding. It's uh, Absolutely. It's not cheap, but Mary does have a, a properly proactive approach to, to tracking down that money. And I thought the crowdfunding appeal that she did for the European Under-23 Championships last season uh, is an example of a kind of more modern approach perhaps to uh, to using social media to effectively gather support from from perhaps non-traditional sources. Absolutely and this is the next generation people coming through into the fencing world these are the future fencers and they have different access to different te- they've grown up with technology and they are using these platforms and I mean proactive is the word I was so impressed to hear how she she knows what she's doing she's going out she's finding this and she's succeeding in doing so 
and she's got a future strategy. She's thinking ahead to what she wants to do next. She's not sitting there going, I've got this, so I'll just rinse and repeat. She's, Mm -hmm. she's thinking ahead. And I think that as a, as an actual individual quality, that's something to be so admired and to, to be promoted. But there's, there's just this running theme as we're hearing from the individual through to the club level and all the way up to the, the national governing body that funding is an ongoing issue that we need to be sustainable. We need to be able to bring in money that can keep us going without relying on what could be seen as the handout or the um the giving it away f- for nothing so just encouraging that level of governance and that level of thought about it um i'm excited about the aspiration fund the money that georgina mentioned has been um awarded because the background of that being that that money is it's given to british fencing and to the other sports as well that it's been awarded to to specifically encourage and to show the social impact that we're having on the on the people's lives that are experiencing this fencing. We've started the hashtag fencing inspires and that's following the qualification journey of the fencers mm. that are on their way to um to Tokyo. So do follow fencing inspires on uh, social media and on these platforms because we'll be showing how their experience it's not just about the fencing or getting to the Tokyo or getting to the podium. It's about what they're doing in their communities, working with projects like London Youth um, to really have an impact in people's lives. So I'm excited to see how we're going to use that aspiration fund money to actually encourage um, people to be affected and inspired by sport. Yeah, I think the aspiration fund's an interesting one because uh, clearly it's a, a far smaller pot of cash mm. than, than we had with the world-class programme. Yes. And with, I think, importantly, uh, different different aims. It really is about engaging the fencing community and and a wider audience. And, yeah, and beyond. Yeah. In yeah. what what our athletes do for for us. Yes. Yeah. And and do for those um, communities that they're involved with. So the ripple effect of of one athlete's journey and one athlete's experience. If we can drop that little pebble into the world and and show how it ripples out and inspires people who may have never thought of fencing and and just making sure that they are um, inspired and active and able to um, feel or see or do something different after watching one of our athletes journeys is is going to be exciting to see yeah certainly will i think that brings us pretty much to the end of our all about the money episode all about the money the dollars the pounds yes an episode with a a lot of uh, strong Scottish female voices yes. uh, telling, us, uh, telling us about various ways that funding affects our sport and, and how we can use it well, how we can find it and what we need to do to, to make our sport sustainable, really. Thanks, Sean. It's been a good one. And I'm looking forward to episode four. I'll speak to you soon, Sophie. Bye. On guard. Ready?